Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week is an, uh, an old-time friend, a friend I have uh, enjoyed uh, knowing for many, many years, uh, far more than either one of us, I think, would want to uh, uh, truly admit, but that would be Congresswoman Virginia Fox, who represents the North Carolina 5th District. She is now in her ninth term, or her 19th year of serving in the Congress, and so that gives her a, an awful lot of uh, experience and knowledge and background, and we want you to share it with us. So we're just going to open up by uh, uh, welcoming you to the program, uh, Congresswoman Fox, Representative Fox, and uh, ask you sort of to just generally bring us up to date on where we stand as of today. Well, as of today, the uh, government uh, has been funded, and uh, parts have been funded to January and parts to February. Um, Don, we are in a divided government. Uh, we were that way, this the same way, uh, part of the time under President Obama, I believe the first two years of his term, and that's the way we are under President Biden. So we have a, a Democrat Senate, barely, uh, just uh, one vote, actually. And, but in the House, the Republicans are in the majority by three votes, and of course, we have a Democrat president. So we have a divided government. And uh, some people think that's good. Some I don't think it's necessarily wonderful. We do need to work together and compromise. Uh, we don't have a, a czar or a king. Um, we have a representative government, a republic. And so it forces us to have to work together. Well, there have been times during your period of time where there was more cooperation between the parties. And uh, as you said, there's times where there seems to be more division. Uh, but uh, compromise is always uh, somehow or another always seems to be sort of the best form of government when people can come together and rationalize and issue and talk the issues out and then come to some sort of a compromise. I, I don't know whether you agree with that or not, but it just seems like to me that that works sometimes better. Well, uh, each one of us thinks we have the answer to the issues. I certainly have a very strong worldview um, that is set up by my background. Uh, grew up extremely poor, worked hard, got a good education, and have succeeded. And so that colors the way I think of things. And each one of us has that situation our backgrounds and our experiences color what we think is right about the world, our worldview. But as you say, uh, not everybody agrees. So ultimately we have to come to a compromise because it takes 218 votes to pass a bill in the house. And then it takes sometimes 60 votes in the Senate, depending on what their rule is. And then you have to get the president to sign the bill People still have to understand that. Often people uh, talk about the House having the power of the purse, but if you read in the Constitution where that's stated, any bill that we have has to still go to the Senate and be passed and signed by the president. So we, nobody has unilateral control. I want to change the subject a little bit. If you were talking about uh, 
division, even within the Republican Party and even within the Democratic Party, there are always factions. Uh, we have a new House Speaker. How about uh, talking a little bit about that entire episode of how we came to uh, replace the Speaker of the House and how the new Speaker of the House is has been elected and, and some of your thoughts and opinions of how we go on from here? Well, I think we have a great speaker in Mike Johnson from Louisiana. He is a wonderful human being. And I will talk about how we got there, but let me say from the beginning, as we went through this process, many of us were thinking, well, who in our group uh, has offended the fewest number of people? <laughs> who is most liked? And I will tell you, a few of us from early on, uh, had Mike in our sights, uh, there were only two or three people that we saw who could be real compromised candidates, and he was one of them. But here's how we got to where we are now. Um, at the beginning, when Kevin McCarthy was elected speaker, when we started this session of Congress, a group demanded that we put into the rules of the House what's called a motion to vacate, where one member could make a motion to vacate the chair. The chair means the speaker's chair. And so Kevin finally assented to that. And there were some members who were unhappy with him. So I can't remember the exact day, sometime in uh, September, um, there was a motion to vacate. And um, I believe it was eight people who voted to vacate the chair, meaning we didn't have a speaker. We went three weeks without a speaker uh, then um, uh, Steve Scalise, who's the majority leader, number two in the House, was nominated. He did not get a majority of the votes. Then uh, Tom Emmer, who's the whip, who's the third person, did not get the majority of the votes. So, And Jim Jordan was nominated. He had a majority, but he did not know whether he could get the votes on the floor to win we had a secret ballot and he got the answer that he would not be uh, supported by all of the members. Therefore, he didn't go forward. So we voted on three people. Then um, some other people put their names in the hat and, and Mike Johnson was one of them. Uh, we had several votes. Uh, people dropped out. And finally, we unanimously uh, came to support Mike Johnson uh, from Louisiana. And again, I think he's a great candidate. He's very sharp. He's only been in the Congress four terms, or I think maybe three and a half terms. He's in his fourth term. But he's a very likable guy. He's a strong constitutionalist. He was a constitutional lawyer, still is, I guess. And he's very conservative. He makes no... Uh, secret of his faith and relying on his faith and making decisions. Uh, some people in the country don't like that. I happen to think you need a moral base. And I believe um, having a base in the Bible is a good way to operate. So I think uh, Mike is a good speaker and will be a very good speaker um, if left alone. Uh, it is a tough job. Uh, he may be in the toughest job in the country in many ways. Um, the president has a tough job also, but I think Mike has a really tough job because within the Republican conference, 
There's a wide range of philosophies. And then you have to merge the Democrats and the Republicans together to get anything done or get almost anything done. So it's it's a tough position to be in. But I have high hopes for him. And I just think he's a wonderful person. Is the provision to vacate still in the, the rules now? It still is in the rules. I don't think it will change during this session of Congress. If Republicans are in the majority in the next session, um, the most people are saying that has to go. Uh, there'll always be a problem if you have a small ma majority like we have right now. We have only a majority of three because we had one of our members resign. His wife became very ill and he did the right thing. He went home to take care of his wife. But there, so we have a majority of three. We will probably be expelling a member week after Thanksgiving when we go in, which will give us a majority of two. So when you have an extraordinarily small majority, it makes it tough um, to pass rules. You mentioned uh, the uh, candidate uh, or the uh, congressman that might be expelled. That's also an unusual situation. It is an unusual situation. I can't remember the number that have been expelled. Uh, we censured a member the other day on the Democrat side for calling for the destruction of Israel. Her, it was really clear she was calling for the destruction of Israel and and we censured her. And my understanding is she's only the 26th member of the House to be censured. Um, and of course, we've been been a House of Representatives for 242 or 243 years. So we don't censure and we don't expel very often. I, I think we've only expelled three or four members. The details of this uh, this member uh, seemed to be uh, very convincing. Yes, he abused his position. He used campaign dollars, uh, money that people gave him for his campaign for per personal purposes. The Ethics Committee did a very extensive uh, investigation. The Ethics Committee does not recommend uh, things like this very often, um, as I said. So I, I think people will follow the, the Ethics Committee's recommendation. In the other segments of Carolina Newsmakers, we're going to get uh, sort of down into the weeds. And of course, uh, now that you're in your 19th year, your ninth term, you are beginning to have positions of great authority and, and you are uh, the chair of the Subcommittee on Higher Education, which uh, fits your background. It does. I'm, I'm actually the chair of the Education and Workforce Committee. That's the title under Republicans. Um, and so, yes, it fits my background. As I said, I grew up poor, got a good education, always wanted to help other people get a good education. So I had the opportunity to work at the University of North Carolina when I was in school there. Then I came to we moved back to the mountains. I worked at Appalachian. I was on the school board for 12 years. I worked at Appalachian as an instructor and administrator for 15 years. I became the president of a community college. So I have background in all those areas of education. Now, the committee deals with a lot more than education. We do have the labor department. We have all pension legislation uh, is in our committee, Don. 
all employer-sponsored health care is in our committee. So the committee's jurisdiction is very, very broad. Um, 150 million people in the country are covered by their employer-sponsored health care. So we have more people than anybody else. But this term, we are really focused on education and workforce development. And so I'll talk some more about that. We desperately need education reform, particularly at the higher education level. And we're working on that. We also need reform in workforce development. We have a bill called Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act. We're going to reauthorize that, and we're going to work on reauthorizing the Higher Ed Act. Well, we want to get a little further into the weeds of the work of the committees because that's where most of the action really happens. And, of course, you are in a perfect position to give us some insight there. Our guest is Congresswoman Virginia Fox, who represents North Carolina's 5th District, And we're going to take a break right now for some commercial messages, and we'll be back with segment number two right after these messages. As veterans, we're no strangers to helping others. It's what we were taught, trained, and told to do. It could be for anything. Helping a friend move. Listening to a fellow veteran for hours at any hour of the day. Or just simply making time for people, a neighbor, a loved one, or even a stranger. We're often the first to help others. There's no question about it. But we do have one question for the veterans listening. When is the last time you reached out for help? Perhaps it's time to do for yourself what you would do for others. If you or someone you know needs resources, whether it's for stress, finances, employment, or mental health, don't wait. Reach out. Find more information at va.gov reach. That's va.gov slash reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. Talking to your kids about the dangers of vaping can be hard. Getting them to listen to hot gossip is easy. So here's some drama you could share with your kid. Dude, did you hear about Cassie and Jake? No, but did you hear that vaping can cause irreversible lung damage and nicotine affects brain development? <gasps> Nuh-uh. You don't need to gossip if you want to have an open conversation about vaping. So if you want to get tips on when and how to talk to your kids, visit TalkAboutVaping.org. Brought to you by the American Lung Association and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week is an old-time friend, a friend of longstanding, Congresswoman Virginia Fox. I, uh, I go back, I think, to 1978 in our friendship when we served on a a committee with the uh, Z. Smith Reynolds Foundation way back. And uh, we've uh, continued to stay in touch all these years through her 10 years in the North Carolina Senate and then uh, most recently her 19 years in Congress. The 5th District, uh, you might want to, just so that folks around the state are familiar with the area in which you serve, uh, what are the counties and the cities that are involved in the 5th District, uh, Congresswoman Fox? Well, it depends on what year you're talking about. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) It is sort of a moving picture, isn't it? The district changes every two years. I think I'm in in my fourth district in five terms, uh, and next year the district will be different again. So it's basically 
the counties bordering the Virginia-North Carolina border, um, beginning in Watauga County. This year, I happen to have Avery and Mitchell, uh, and it goes from Mitchell, Avery, Watauga, Ash, Allegheny, Surrey, Stokes. Then it drops down a level geographically, uh, Wilkes, Yadkin, Forsyth, and I have uh, Davie County. Then next year, it's going to be Watauga, Ash, Allegheny, Surrey, Stokes, Rockingham, part of Guilford, Caldwell, and Alexander. Oh, Caldwell's in the district now, too. So those will be the counties, um, have a large segment of Guilford County and all of Rockingham. I have all, all of the counties. All the counties I've mentioned, except Guilford, I have only part of Guilford, but a good part of it. Well, that's uh, that's an interesting district, but it, it makes uh, campaigning and keeping in touch with your constituents uh, very difficult because it's a it's a wide geographic area and covers a lot of ground. It does, and uh, it's a challenge. Uh, it takes a long time to drive. Uh, from one corner of the district to the other corner of the district. You know, I have Beach Mountain is part of Beach Mountain. A good part of it is in Watauga. And also part of Seven Devils is in Watauga. So I have, if I stayed in the district, if I started, say, in Beach Mountain, the far corner, and drove to the far corner of Rockingham, it would probably take me about four and a half, five hours because of the road system. Um, but I can drop down, you know, onto the interstate and get there a little quicker. But it is a long district. Um, and, of course, redistricting uh, is always subject to the courts, although this uh, set of districts is probably the one we're going to use for this upcoming election. Speaking of the election, uh, North Carolina, of course, now being uh, – with its population growth and adding a, an additional congressional seat uh, uh, is becoming more and more a factor in national politics. And uh, uh, that, and of course, North Carolina being pretty much of a purple state creates sort of an interesting situation. It does. And it is a purple state. And the uh, 2024 election is going to be quite interesting we, of course, will elect a governor, lieutenant governor, all the council of state, all the legislature, all the members of Congress. Um, and so it will it'll be an interesting year uh, for North Carolina. It'll be a lot of focus on North Carolina. We're now the ninth largest state. And I suspect in the 2030 census, we'll pick up another member of Congress. We're now at 14 and I suspect we'll get a 15th one uh, in 2030. Well, it's, it, it just proves my point about North Carolina. As I've told people a dozen times, I look at the state through uh, Tar Heel glasses, and I, I only think there's four kinds of people, people who live in North Carolina, people who want to live in North Carolina, and people that don't know about it. Right. Well, yes. And I'll tell you, the traffic up in the mountains has gotten so bad. I'm not encouraging anyone to move here. I'll tell you the truth. We're overwhelmed. COVID had people discover North Carolina, unfortunately. Uh, COVID did it did a lot of damage to our country. I'll talk about education later. It helped us with education situation 
in terms of revealing how bad it is, but it sure did bring people to North Carolina. Well, let's talk a little bit about education, and uh, because that's one of your major funct- uh, functions in the uh, committee. Um, the cost of education seems to continue to rise. What do you think we need to do to bring the cost under control? Well, we need to start, stop uh, giving so much money to uh, people for colleges and edu- for uh, colleges and universities. Don, we can see a direct correlation between increased money coming from taxpayers to the rising cost of tuition and fees. And when the colleges and universities assume that taxpayers are just going to pay, they'll keep raising their costs. We need much, much better accountability for how the money is being spent. And that's one of the things that we want to deal with in a reform of higher education. We also want the colleges and universities to be focused on student success and not just on glorifying the campuses. Um, We know again that many, many more administrators have been hired than faculty and the, the universities will say, well, that's because of rules and regulations, but we're not so sure about that. So we want a lot more accountability. We want the colleges and universities to post how much it's going to cost to go to college and how much, how long it's going to take, what's the likelihood of a student getting a job with the degree that he or she is going into. And uh, there's a lot that we want to see happen. We'd like to see a lot of innovation. We'd like to see the time for degrees um, shortened. We'd like to see competency-based education, uh, better credit transfers. We want to see work-study reforms. We'd like to see uh, more internships, apprenticeship-type programs. There's lots that needs to be done, but we basically need a great deal more in accountability. Then on student debt, we want the students to be go into borrowing money with their eyes wide open. And we want the taxpayers to get a good return on the money that they loan the students. Right now, the average student pays back only about half of what he or she owes, which means the taxpayers are subsidizing not just the colleges and universities, but individual students. Your background as head of a community college puts you sort of in a unique position. Where does the community college system fit in, and particularly in North Carolina, with the uh, with the publics? Well, we have a good community college system in North Carolina, and uh, I left the university to go to the community college because I thought that's where the action was, and it still can be. But like any other in set of entities. You have really good community colleges where the presidents are very innovative and work hard at it. But what our community colleges need to be doing is be focusing on workforce development. Right now, Don, we have 6 million unemployed Americans. We have 9 million job openings in our country. There's obviously a mismatch between the two. And We've always thought of the community colleges 
as having programs to help people get the skills that they need to fill those jobs. Now, the community colleges also do a lot by way of college transfer. So they do both things. And it's possible to do both things very well. But we, I think, and many other people think that we need to do a better job of of the education to workforce pipeline. We think it's fractured. And we do believe, I mean, there, there are some people in this world who can go to college to simply then later, you know, focus on contemplating their navels. But for the most part, community colleges um, and universities are there to help people be successful in life, lifelong success by getting a good basic education. And so we wanted we want them to encourage uh, programs that help people get the skills they need to be successful throughout their lives. And we think earn and learn programs are good ways to do that. Now, there's, uh, of course, a role in the education system for privates, but the the government seems to continue to want to get more and more involved in assisting privates, uh, private colleges and universities. What's your thoughts on that? Again, we're blessed in North Carolina in particular with so many different kinds of colleges and universities. We have a wonderful um, state university system. Uh, You and I both graduated from Carolina. I have two degrees there and a degree from UNC Greensboro. So we have those. And we have Appalachian State in my district. We have Winston-Salem State in my district. Then we have the privates. We have Wake Forest. We have Duke. We have small privates, large privates. They're great. And the state does give a subsidy to the private schools. I'm not sure what it is this year. It started out very small, like $1,000. And initially, I thought, well, that's not right. But that saves us uh, ten dollars to $12,000 in the public schools because we're Again, the taxpayers are subsidizing the universities probably at $11,000 or $12,000 a year in addition to tuition and fees. So if you give $1,000 or $2,000 to a private school, um, even like Wake Forest or um, the smaller schools that are out there, that saves the taxpayers a lot of money. And there's an opportunity to be in a smaller school and perhaps get a specialized program that might not be available in another school. The wonderful thing about our education system in this country is there's so many choices. There are also private for-profit institutions in North Carolina. They're much, much more adaptable to the needs of the workforce, and yet the Biden administration is trying to put them out of business. Again, we need a range of opportunities for students, whether it be community college, for-profit school, uh, small or large uh, nonprofit school, or the public universities. And we need to preserve all of those. Again, unfortunately, the Biden administration picks and it chooses winners and losers. And that's not the way it should be. 
through 12, uh, should that be shortened to 11 years? Um, what I think we need to do in K through 12 is emphasize more um, dual enrollment. That is taking advantage of the community colleges. I think every student in high school should also be enrolled in community college courses. And Don, there's an astonishing statistic. If a student in high school takes one college course while in high school, they are three times more likely to earn a degree or credential. So we need to really do that. And North Carolina is leading the pack and has since 1974. We've had the possibility of free dual enrollment. So it's a great program. Our guest this week is uh, Congresswoman Virginia Fox of North Carolina's 5th District. We've got another session coming up, and we're going to take a time out for commercial break, and then we're coming back, and we want to talk about the House oversight and reform area of government. We'll do that right after these messages. They are our cuddlers and co-workers, purr machines and love bugs, and constant companions. They are our pets, our family, and they make life so much better. When we face unexpected challenges in life, so do our pets. That's why we're on a mission to support people who love their pets and the pets who love their people, ensuring these families stay exactly where they belong, together. And you have something to offer. With an open heart and mind, there is nothing you can't do. There's no gesture too small or too big when it comes to helping. Whether donating a bag of kibble, sharing an Instagram post of a lost cat, or welcoming a foster pet into your home, every bit of kindness counts. You can help keep pets and people together. Visit petsandpeopletogether.org to learn how to be a helper in your community. This has been a public service announcement brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. And welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week, all the way from the extreme northwestern part of North Carolina, Congresswoman Virginia Fox, who represents that 5th District, sort of a wide-ranging area in northwestern North Carolina. She is now in her 19th year of service in the Congress, ninth term, and uh, we have uh, enjoyed a long-time relationship and friendship with uh, uh, the Congresswoman for many, many years. We want to talk a little bit about, uh, uh, in general, federal spending, the national debt, and uh, just generally the oversight and reform areas of the uh, duties of the Congress. So I'm going to just turn it over to you and let you go. Well, Don, I'm very concerned, as are most Americans right now, with where we are with the economy. Um, in the newsletter that I put out this week, I talk about inflation and the catastrophe that we have with inflation in this country. The average working person is really, really struggling in this country right now. Um, as we put out in the newsletter, 
as you're preparing for Thanksgiving, um, since uh, Joe Biden took office, prices for the most basic of commodities that we rely on have surged by 17.1%. Um, and when he took office, inflation was sitting at just 1.4%. So we're suffering. Gasoline prices are higher. They've come down a little bit recently. But uh, I know when I go to the grocery store, I shop often early Sunday mornings and I go to the Markdown meat counter. That's where I buy my most of my meat. And they don't have much in the Markdown meat counter these days. Uh, but um, that's where I've, I've gone most of the time. And I think about the average family and I, I think, my goodness, how are you dealing with this? You got one, two, three, four kids. The prices are up so high. And I'm very empathetic. Again, the price of gasoline, while it's come down a little bit, is still high. Let me tell you how the uh, average American family feels. In polls, a recent AP poll, two-thirds of adults say their household expenses have risen over the last year. 73% of Americans say the state of the national economy is very, very poor. So we know Americans are feeling the pain of the inflation that's out there. And wages always, uh, uh, in the periods of inflation, wages, it takes wages of time to catch up. Great. And some people are getting slight increases because the job market is so tight, but the wages are not keeping pace with the rate of inflation. So you might get a small raise, but you're going to wind up spending that and more. Are you concerned? Uh, that's a silly question. Of course, you're concerned about it, about uh, the national debt. Very, very concerned about it. And it's a very tough thing to talk about because the national debt is being driven primarily by programs that are called mandatory spending. It is Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and now interest on the debt. Our debt has gone up so high that the interest payment is a huge expense to us. And so the tinkering that we're doing around the edges with our yearly uh, expenditures, when our appropriations bills, that's only 17% of what we are spending. Seven More than 70% is on automatic pilot. So you and I are both on Medicare, I'm sure, because the government forces us to be on Medicare. We've paid for it through payroll, and now we're on Medicare. Don, what the average person doesn't know, I've, I answered a letter last night from somebody who said, I want the money back that I put into the program. Well, the average couple on Medicare draws out three times what that couple has paid into Medicare. Any program run by the government is going to be highly inefficient. And that's what's happened with Medicare. People think that they're getting what they paid for. They're getting two, three times what they paid for. Social Security, when it was begun, the average lifespan was 59 years of age. They set it up to be drawn out at 65. 
Now we're living to be almost 80. And when it began, 33 people were paying in. Now we're down to almost, it's two to one paying in. So more money's going out than is going in. So we have a real problem. We have to deal with those issues. But most people in elected office at the federal level don't want to touch them because they know older people vote. And if they start talking about making modifications to Social Security and Medicare, they're going to lose voters because it's very difficult to explain to people. Uh, I have heard from time to time people suggesting that uh, Medicare and Medicaid would be better off with a voucher system than the system we have. What's your thought on that? We know Medicare Advantage is a much better program. Uh, we'd be much better off if we didn't have the government running these programs. That's the bottom line. Um, and we also need to do something about younger people and maybe giving them an opportunity to go into annuities. That's what President uh, George W. Bush tried to do, and uh, people wouldn't support him for that. So we have to deal with it, though. Otherwise, we know that in 2030, 2030 or 2034, Social Security is going to have to be cut back 25% if we don't do something fairly soon. And uh, usually we wait a little bit uh, late on that. Uh, we've had this same crisis several times in the past. Correct. The last time Social Security was modified was 1984, I believe. And with under uh, President Reagan, they made adjustments. They increased the age to 67. It's probably going to need to be increased a little bit more. And people are probably going to have to pay in a little bit more. Uh, but it, we need to do that. Again, we need to do that with people age 50 and younger. That's what President uh, Bush had suggested. You know, one of the interesting things that people, I think, uh, they always think about jobs being more of a personal thing. But with nine million job openings, that's nine million more people paying taxes to state government and to the federal government. And well, so the unemployment situation affects the revenue situation uh, uh, as much as uh, as you can imagine. That is exactly correct. That's exactly correct. So what uh, what do you see as an answer to these these nine million openings? And uh, because I, I know our company, we've got thirty two openings, and we're not that big a company, right? Well, what we have to do again is we have to get to people earlier in their lives and help them understand what jobs are out there and help them find what fits them in life. And we also have to stop paying people not to work, Don. We have way too many people who are not working in this country. And that was set up under the Obama administration. We have uh, like 5 million men who are in prime working ages who, who are allowed to get Medicaid. They're not married. They don't have children. And we're paying people basically not to work. We need to stop that. Uh, I know of at least two situations in the, the area that I live, Raleigh, uh, where daycare is just not available because they don't have enough daycare workers. Um, and of course, that affects people's ability to go out and fill some of these jobs. Uh, can the government help in any way with that? 
Well, we already are helping. I don't think it's appropriate for the government to help. I don't read that in the Constitution that we should be subsidizing child care. What we should be doing is reducing rules and regulations, and we should be making it possible uh, for people to go into the business a lot easier and have a lot more flexibility. Um, but I don't think the government should be subsidizing child care. We need to lower taxes to allow business and industry to pay people more money so they can afford childcare. And of course, if companies have more money and more people to work, it, the effect on the budget actually is positive because more people pay taxes. Exactly, exactly. And that's part of our inflation problem. The government has taken so much money out of the economy that it is hurting uh, the economy dramatically. That's what has caused such a big difference. You know, the uh, one of the examples that Mike Walden uses, and Mike is on our program a lot, is that uh, the economy is actually like a balloon. And when you push in one place, it pops out another. It, but the same amount of air is there. Exactly. Now, that's a good analogy. And by the way, I, let me compliment you on your newsmaker programs. I listen to them uh, most weeks, and you do a great job. Um, I love hearing Dale Falwell explain things, Mike Walden, other people that you've had on the show. Well, those are two that uh, really have a great understanding of how the economy works and, and uh, have some great ideas and thoughts. And, and uh, But it is a complicated situation. And, of course, you know, uh, one of the things that has always sort of bothered me is the fact that Congress – the Congress is elected in two-year terms, and so you're constantly, uh, your members are forced to constantly be thinking about re-election. Yes, but that's good, uh, Don. I think the only, the biggest mistake they made in in the Constitution is allowing senators have six-year terms. See, I'd reduce the senators' terms <laughs> than have it maybe four. Um, you see, the members of the House are very close to the people, and I think that's good. Well, uh, you're, you know, that is good. And, of course, uh, most of our, our Congress uh, members, because they're so close to Washington, are able to save a lot of time and be back in the district. How much time do you have for the district versus the time you're in Washington? Well, we're normally in Washington four days a week, and I come home every weekend, and I generally do two to eight events every Saturday. So when there are things going on, I try to participate. I go to the farmer's market and just walk around a lot of times, or I'll go to parades, or I'll go to ceremonies that are going on, or I meet with people in my office individually. I talk to people on the phone. I'm very, very, very visible in the district, and I'm very accessible to people. I probably am the most accessible member of Congress that I know, and but I have some friends who do that too. Some don't do that, uh, but I just happen to think that's part of my job. I don't do a lot of polling. People ask me that because I don't need to. As I said, I answer my own mail. I talk to people on the phone and I hear people on the weekends uh, when I'm home. And I meet with people if they come to Washington. I have constituents meeting with me every day in Washington. I figure if they go to the trouble to come up there, I'm gonna meet with them if at all possible. I meet with a wide ranging uh, groups of people too. It's not just one group I meet with. 
with school kids. I meet with manufacturers. I met with a dairy farmer this past week and a, a large animal vet and some other farmers. So I meet with a wide ranging uh, group of people. Uh, I meet with military, all kinds of people, because it's important to hear from those people as to, again, how the economy's uh, affecting them, what's happening with uh, people working. Everybody's got a problem with workforce. Nobody can find employees these days. Well, it, being a good listener is certainly a great, great uh, habit because that's where you really learn what's going on and uh, how you can uh, carry out your duties and responsibilities. And I'm sure that's uh, always welcome to those who talk with you because they know you're listening and really hearing what they're saying. Our guest is Congresswoman Virginia Fox from North Carolina's 5th District. We have one final segment. We're going to turn to foreign affairs, amongst other things, in the next segment. You stay tuned. I spend a lot of time in the garage, but even more time in the rain, sleet, and mud. In 95, I helped tow your moving trailer. You know, five. I helped you get out of a ditch. Yeah, I know I'm a bit rusty, and sadly in 09, it was sparks from me, your handy chains, dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire. Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. Here's a fun fact for you. The average chameleon can point their eyes in two different directions. On the other hand, the average human can't. So unless you're a chameleon, there's absolutely no way you can focus on texting and driving at the same time. So don't do it. Unless you're a chameleon. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week, the uh, uh, Congresswoman from the 5th District of North Carolina, that's the northwestern part of our state. Uh, the upper northwestern part. Well, I guess northwestern explains it. And that would be Congresswoman Virginia Fox. And she is in her 19th year of serving uh, that district, which moves around a bit from time to time, according to redistricting, and will again in this upcoming election. But uh, we have sort of saved this last segment to talk about foreign affairs because so much in the news right now, the Israeli situation and also the Ukraine-Russian war and how those are affecting not only uh, those countries, but also world affairs. Uh, I'm just going to sort of turn it over to you and just say, bring us up to date on uh, what your opinions and thoughts are in that regard. Well, thanks, Don. First thing I want to say, though, is thank you to Curse Media for not just this program, but lots of programs. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an inveterate listener of the radio. I've always loved hearing the radio. When I'm home, early in the mornings, uh, particularly. That's about the only time I am home when I'm home. I, actually, in D.C., I listen to the radio, too. 
because uh, I don't have a TV in my apartment. I'm not in my apartment long enough to have television. So I listen to the radio, local radio. I get the news, the weather, um, the traffic up in D.C. We don't have that yet in our area, but might need it one of these days. And uh, I thank you. And I love Mark Norris. He's new on WATA and Boone, and he's just doing a fabulous job. So congratulate him. Um, we do have to deal with foreign affairs in the in the House and in the Senate. You know, um, we have a federal government designed for the defense of this nation. Many people don't realize that our federal government, that's its number one role, Don. Now, we've gotten involved in the federal government with a lot of other things, and I often talk about that, education, health care, and other things, which we ought not to be involved in. We really should be focused on national defense, and that's a concern of mine. The open border is a great concern of mine and of of many people. It's becoming a concern, I think, of Democrats and Republicans. And I won't get into the political aspect of that right now, but everybody's concerned about the border. And partially we're concerned about the border because of the threat of terrorists coming in. And we just saw what happened in Israel. Um, Hamas uh, came up out of their tunnels and attacked innocent Israelis killing 1,400 of them and uh, taking over 240 hostages. We had Americans killed. We had people of several nationalities. There's several nationalities being held hostage. And let me be perfectly clear. We have to wipe out Hamas. And um, Israel cannot continue to live in the situation that it's living in. The attack on Israel must be condemned in the strongest terms. And I believe that Israel has every right to defend itself from these Iranian-backed regimes of just ruthless killers. I did not go see the video they showed this week that they took off of the body cams of the killers, killing babies, cutting people's heads off, cutting babies out of mother's bodies, and being happy about it, I can't. I couldn't go watch it, um, but I, I want to say that um, we we have to support Israel in its efforts um, to wipe out Hamas. I've been a supporter of Israel all my life. Uh, in 2018, the House passed a resolution I authored that called for the demilitarization of the Palestinian territories. Uh, but we have to do something now. We have to work with Israel and get this done. And we need to support Israel at every stage of the game. I'm also concerned about what's happening in Ukraine. Um, the bottom line is that in the case of Ukraine, it's in our best interest that Russia is stopped dead in its tracks and not emboldened to push beyond Ukraine and the rest of Europe. And I think that is definitely a strong possibility. You know, uh, Putin said the worst thing that ever happened in the 20th century was the breakup of the Soviet Union. We know that China's watching what's happening. China's watching whatever we do to figure out what it can do. China wants to conquer the world. It has for a long time wanted to do that. And I'm very concerned about it. I'm also very concerned about how what's happened in the Biden administration and with Joe Biden, how that's affecting 
his decisions on foreign affairs. I'm on the Oversight and Accountability Committee, and we're conducting an impeachment inquiry into President Biden and his family's influence. What we have found, on is from Russia, from Kazakhstan, from China, that the Biden family has been paid up to $20 million. And what we don't know is how much that has influenced the decisions that President Biden is making as it relates to these countries, China, Russia, and other countries. Um, We know that they've been given $20 million. We've released the bank records showing that. And what they do is they channel that money through as many as uh, 20 different LLCs and bank accounts. What we don't understand is why in the world would they be hiding this money if the money was not gotten for nefarious purposes? So what the decisions that President Biden is making um, may be being influenced by the money that he has received from various entities, particularly China. And so we're very worried about that. But I want to talk again, Russia, Ukraine, Israel, all of these things are tied together because we have to defend our nation. And part of the way we defend our nation is by supporting these other nations to stop foreign adversaries from advancing. Again, in in terms of Ukraine, we've put a lot of money into Ukraine. It's become very, very controversial, but I am firmly convinced that Ukraine is going to stop Russia and um, not demilitarize Russia, but take Russia to the point of even greater weakness and help us in our national defense. In terms of Israel, we have to do everything we can to help Israel wipe out Hamas because Hamas and Hezbollah are being given money by Iran, and that's where the real problem lies. So national defense is our number one issue. That's where we should be focused, not on other areas, but we live in an increasingly dangerous world, Dom, and we have to pay attention to that. We focus too much internally, I believe, in our country and not enough on what's going on in other countries to become educated. And you mentioned earlier about how uh, when we money is spent in one area, it has an impact on other areas. Well, what happens overseas has an impact on us in this country, too. And we need to pay attention to all of that. Do you believe that the majority of the Congress shares your opinions on Israel and the Ukraine as far as expenditures? Um, It's pretty split right now on Ukraine, uh, but so far the majority has uh, seen the light, I think, on that issue. In terms of Israel, yes, we are very much united on that. Now, there's a group of progressives in the uh, House, and there's some in the Senate who do not want to fund Israel. Um, We don't give a lot of money to Israel each year. We have helped with the Iron Dome, which has made a huge difference 
to them in terms of their defense because they're bombarded every day. I think it's difficult for people to understand what would it be like if every day you had to run into a bomb shelter because missiles were being fired at very close range. And that's what the Israeli people have to deal with every day. And they're still dealing with it as they're fighting Hamas right now. That's why every every home has a bomb shelter in Israel. And so they they are dealing with this every day of their lives. So that's why we have to do something about Hamas. We need to do something with Iran. I, I haven't I didn't mention earlier that President Biden is allowing Iran to have more money. President Obama gave Iran billions of dollars when he was in office in cash on pallets delivered by our uh, military aircraft. And what did they do with that money? They are developing nuclear weapons. A nuclear Iran is a threat to all of humanity. We cannot allow that to happen. Israel can't allow that to happen. They call us the uh, big Satan, and they call Israel the little Satan. They do not want us to exist, and we have to pay close attention to that. We cannot let Iran get a nu- get nuclear weapons, and the policies of President Obama and President Biden have encouraged that. But we need to help Israel all that we can. We need to be very careful in how we give money to Ukraine. We need accountability for that money and to know that that money is going for um, the defense of the Ukrainian people and ultimately for our defense. We've got about 30 seconds to answer a big question. As you go back to Washington this week, what's your top priority? Well, my top priority will be, um, again, getting the focus on the bills I have to deal with. We'll be introducing bills related to education in the workforce. That's my top priority. And then I will be dealing with other issues that are coming up from other committees. So it's always a mixed bag, Don, and we have a lot on our plate to deal with. Well, thank you for being so candid and for all the insight on what's happening in Washington. And uh, our guest, of course, has been Congresswoman Virginia Fox in her 19th year of serving uh, the state of North Carolina in the 5th District, which is, of course, as we said, the northwestern part of North Carolina. Uh, If you uh, uh, are listening to a station that carries only the half-hour version of this program, you can hear two segments that that you did not hear by going to carolinanewsmakers.com. That's carolinanewsmakers.com. Or if you'd like to share the entire broadcast or hear a repeat of the broadcast, you can also do the same thing, carolinanewsmakers.com. Jason Kong has produced our program. He lines up our guests each week, and he's promised me faithfully that he will have another interesting guest again next week on this same group of stations all across North Carolina. It's my pleasure to be with you each week, and we look forward to being back next week, same time, same station. So the next week, Have a good week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong 
Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers.